and welcome in to another episode of Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Karen Steckley. With me, as always, he writes for The Athletic. His heart, his mind, and his DMs are open. He is Cody Stavenhagen. Cody, how you doing? Yeah, no, I'm doing I'm doing good, Karen. I'm here in beautiful Chicago, one of my favorite cities, and it's, it's the last weekend of the season. Kind of crazy to think by the time this podcast releases, the year will be over. So uh, a lot of storylines wrapping up, a lot of good stuff going on, and some Tigers White Sox. Always interesting baseball, in my opinion. Well, before we get specifically to Tigers White Sox, uh, so you were in Minnesota, and now you're in Chicago, as you just said. Um, Given the economic realities of the past year with the pandemic and all that stuff, uh, you didn't do as much traveling as you normally would. And also the team the past couple of years, no secret, hasn't been, you know, up to snuff. But now the team is competitive and good. Not going to overrate it, but good. Uh, how did it feel to kind of get back into, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of a normal beat writer routine where you're, you know, you're in hotels and you're in airports and you're in different cities and, it, you know, you know, back to, especially this week, really crowded schedule a little bit different than would be normally but you know not necessarily something that would be unexpected over the course of a of a season how's it feel to kind of be back in what i would consider a regular beat writer routine yeah like given that i'm not a newspaper beat writer i'll probably never go to like 81 road games a year uh but i would go on a few more road trips where we not in this pandemic and everything uh, I, I will say it feels good to be out on the road. It does, you know, a lot of the good things about this job that you kind of grow up dreaming of doing or whatever come with being on the road, just seeing different ballparks. Um, something about the life is it's just fun. You know, you get to see writers, you know, from other towns and hang out after games or, you know, Minneapolis and Chicago. I did internships in both cities. So there's some spots I wanted to to hit and um, you know go eat or go out for drinks after the game stuff like that and then just being around the team you know that close every day actually some stuff in person is different than doing zooms at at your house where it's easy to not feel engaged so I definitely enjoy being out on the road um, especially yeah year ends here there's plenty to talk about plenty to do it's been good. And yeah, sometimes the travel is not fun. They, the getaway day in Minnesota was not a day game. It was a night game for some reason. A couple of my colleagues booked like 5 a.m. flights out the next the next morning. I don't know why they did that. I went for the 1030, but then it was kind of like, wake up, get to the airport. Okay, get to Chicago. You have to somehow get from O'Hare to downtown, which takes forever. And it was basically check into the hotel, go straight to the park. So you know, Friday was a, a long day for sure with little time to like stop and breathe. Do you have, I imagine your favorite ballparks would probably be, you know, the usuals like Fenway and, and, and Wrigley and stuff like that. But do you have a favorite city to visit uh, in a, uh, for a major league game? Yeah, I think Chicago would have to be up there. Just, um, you know, I've Again, lived in Chicago for a little bit before. I love the the culture and the vibe and the feel and, and so many great spots in Chicago. So I mean, that it's it's pretty tough to beat. It's pretty tough to beat Chicago. That's that's the one that's coming to mind. And obviously, 
you know, New York's fun, but, uh, and, and got some friends there and Boston and I, I like being out on the West coast somewhat, but man, I think Chicago tops my list. Did you plan, be honest here, did you plan to go to Minnesota because you saw that they were having a Prince night? Be honest. No, I didn't know it was Prince night. Uh, and then I found out it was Prince night and I thought about tweeting, like, this is the only reason <laughs> I made the road trip. I actually didn't know, total coincidence, but shout out twins, some of the highest quality giveaways ever. They gave out these Prince hats that are, they're just really nice. I don't think I have quite the, like, swag's not the word i just it's not quite my style i'm never gonna wear this but i think it's pretty awesome i'll probably like put it on uh put on my desk or like you know my bookshelf or something like that and i was i was hearing about some of the other um giveaways they've had over the years twins do a good job and yeah the city of minneapolis definitely embraces its homeboy prince and they honor his legacy quite well there yeah, I mean, a little side story. So, you know, you and I both have spent some time in Tulsa. The Tulsa Drillers have pretty good giveaways. It's a it's a nice little minor league uh, operation. We've mentioned it last week, actually, uh, with Ryan Garko having been a manager there. And uh, when I was in Tulsa, they had a giveaway for a uh, Mickey Mantle-like commemorative ring i mean it was all like plastic and and bs or whatever but you know it's one of those things where it kind of looked like diamonds if you just kind of gave a quick glance and uh and one of the operations people in the press box was like i don't really want this you want it i was like yeah i want it i'm looking at it right now i got it right on my on my shelf you know it's a it's a it's just a fun little thing because you know i don't know how many people know it's mickey mantle from oklahoma so like he uh he's a legend obviously in oklahoma so you know, these 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 giveaways, baseball does a really good job, just generally speaking. Shout well, out baseball. Shout I, out baseball. I, I, I have my own beef with the Chicago White Sox because they gave out Chicago White Sox beer steins uh, that looked pretty cool, and I wanted one, and they did not hand them out to visiting media in the press box. They did give them to the home media, but they Ooh. just, like, skipped us. Um, and, and so I'm pretty hurt about that. I wanted the White Sox beer stein, but. That is that is not okay. Come on. Come on. It's not. That's not, not that's not okay. Well, speaking of beef with the White Sox, so the the week started out uh with all kinds of beef. Uh there was just your classic baseball quote unquote brawl, which is basically just a bunch of yelling and pushing and shoving. But it had I will say this, it had a little bit more juice than your typical baseball altercation with you know monday with the uh white Sox and the tigers and, and you wrote about this uh this week on the athletic if you subscribe you can read it and and your main point was could this be a little bit of a preview of what we could expect going forward so obviously we know the tigers exceeded expectations this year they are uh obliterating their Vegas over under on wins and were way more competitive than, you know, quite frankly, the roster on opening day dictated. And that's a credit to everybody, but uh, AJ Hinch, especially, he's managed the hell out of this team this year. The White Sox, while they did go through adversity, were kind of considered 
are considered, I should say, the cream of the crop of the division. And they have enough young talent that there's no reason to come off that stance anytime soon. But there's a little bit of a parallel where, like, you know, the White Sox wanted to go hire the old guy, Tony La Russa, you know, A.J. Hinch. Would he have been the better hire? Would that job have enticed him more? You know, if we're just going to be honest here, which job would you want? Obviously, coming into last year, you want the White Sox job. I mean, that's not, that shouldn't be controversial. Um, but the Tigers got A.J., the White Sox got Tony Russo. It was kind of a little murky there with some of the things that he was saying about his players and, you know, is he, like, out of touch and, you know, all these things. And it kind of came to a head on Monday, and, and you pointed out this in your story, some things are just going to happen when you just see the same people so often. So it's 162 games in a regular season, and you're going to play a division opponent, you know, 20-whatever games. You're going to know those pitchers really well. You're going to know those batters really well. You're going to know what makes everybody tick. And it kind of came to a head in a, I don't want to say random, but sort of a unexpected circumstance because you got Alex Lang on the mound. <laughs> Alex Lang. This guy, I, 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 I didn't look at this beforehand, but like it's not like he's faced, it's not like he's Gregory Soto and has faced these guys over and over and over. Like He's a guy that they probably haven't seen all that often. I don't know how many times he's faced the White Sox this year. Maybe that's my fault. But just generally speaking, it's Alex Lang. All right? And he hits Jose Abreu, fine ball player, fun ball player, with an inside pitch, fastball, on the elbow, and an 0-2 count. And a close game. And Abreu don't like it, and there's, like, chirping from the dugouts, and, you know, La Russa, I'm not trying to be, like, anti-La Russa here, just because he, like, manages, like, a rival team or whatever. I was watching that, and I was like, dude, could you move any slower? Could you move any slower? It's like prolonging. He's got to talk. And eventually, AJ, I loved AJ there. It's like, can we just play baseball? Can we can we, can we just play baseball? Like, I would have been irritated, too, if I was him, because La Russa's got to well, talk to this we're forgetting, guy. We're forgetting the bench coach getting tossed. Well, I mean, that, Miguel that, that, Kairos in there just yelling yeah. into the Tigers' dugout, and whatever he said, the ump was like, just just go. Yeah, and, and, and I was going to get to that. But, yeah, it was like, it was just this, like, elongated thing. And, you know, we try to be very fair on this podcast. So I think the fair assessment was it obviously wasn't intentional to hit a bright you there and i will say i didn't have really any issue with the slide in the second base which sparked the altercation or whatever i didn't have much issue with it to be honest i mean nico was there and he was covering the bag like he was he was pretty forefront on covering the bag and a you might have slid hard he might have slid late. Yeah, you're not gonna get a rise out of me about something like that. Like it didn't, it didn't really register. And and Nico's kind of like he's got his hands up, and you know who knows what's actually being said between the two of them. But it didn't. It was one of those things where 
Like I, I've seen Marcus Thames, like <laughs> shin kick middle infielders. Marcus Thames, shin kick middle infielders, and that would start. And actually, it might have been against the White Sox. This instance I'm talking about, but I, I can't remember for sure. That was an aggressive slide, which again I don't have a problem with, but it was an aggressive slide. I didn't really think of Braves was all that much, but maybe it was just one of those things that the boiling point is so high that it could just be anything, and people are just kind of ready to let out a little bit. And I will say this before I ask you, just generally watching that, what what did you see? Um, I thought it was awesome that Alex Lang went in there into the middle of the scuffle and he <laughs> the pitcher the pitcher was basically like come at me bro <laughs> like rookie he, pitcher rookie pitcher yeah he to, to, to an mvp <laughs> to an mvp he's like come at me bro i thought that was i thought it was kind of cool because if because in in team sports there's always this element of like all right i gotta protect my guy you know and you know, they, you know that's that's sort of like the element of team sports, no matter what it is. But Alex is a, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful here, but he's a fringe member of the team, right? He's up and down. We don't really know like what kind of status he really has. He's up. He has promise, but it's not like he's been with the team the entire time or whatever. And and he goes in the middle of it and says come at me bro i don't know if he actually said that but whatever he said could be translated to come at me bro and uh and i think one of the tigers i, I don't remember who kind of like grabbed him and said you know you don't really need to be in the fuckus you're on the mound right now <laughs> you know and uh and so i i don't know i thought that was kind of a cool little moment i i like that he didn't back down i liked that just generally speaking with sports is so cliched when people talk like you know athletes managers coaches whatever um i like petty i as an entertainment value i like petty and that if i were to summarize what went on there in one word it was petty it was petty for a bray you to get upset on an o2 fastball hitting you in the elbow it was petty it was petty for nico goodrum to have to say something on what I thought was maybe a little harder than normal, but nothing egregious slide in the second base. And it was petty to have to have chirping the entire time leading up to that between the two teams. It was just all petty. And I'm here for it. I'm here for the petty because it makes things more interesting. And neither manager, players afterward kind of backed down from it, which I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So, that's just kind of my general spiel on that. You were there. You were watching it uh, in real time. And then sort of as you kind of unraveled it a little bit, what were you thinking? What were you seeing? Yeah, like I thought the whole brawl is not even the word. It wasn't anything close to even a bad baseball brawl. It was everyone ran out there and yelled at each other a little bit and then went back to their dugouts. So I don't know what the word is or what it, what it actually was. The interpersonal conflict um, you know, it kind of was what it was. Look, you're competing, things happen, you know, both sides talk trash. The White Sox definitely have a reputation for being one of the more chatty teams. They got guys like Tim Anderson who, who can run, run their mouth and then back it up with their play, you know, which I like, I think that's fun. I think it's good for the sport. Um, 
But I think the story should have ended there, right? Okay, yeah, Bray, you got hit. It probably wasn't intentional. The slide, yeah, it was late. You know, maybe maybe that wasn't the best. Yeah, LaRusa's being Tony LaRusa. The story should have ended there. But Tony LaRusa continued it by basically saying, you know, it's irresponsible to throw inside. Uh, basically, at, at first, it seemed as though he was intimating laying through to Bray intentionally. The next day, Tony comes and says, well, if, if you don't have command and you throw inside, it's basically the same as intentionally hitting someone, which is like the most ridiculous comment. <laughs> like, like, again, I feel I'm not trying to be like a Tigers homer here, but when I look at this brawl, it's hard for me to like not take the Tigers side because it's like. What are you like? What are you talking about? Like he, he and AJ was, was like, we're gonna continue to throw inside. Um, so that's why we've been talking about this all week. That's why we're still talking about this on the podcast. Friday game one, you know the the tensions did not boil over, but again, look, things are already a little tense between any division rivals because you see them twenty times. They're only going to get more tense between the Tigers and White Sox, in my opinion, because the White Sox are good. The Tigers are going to get a lot better. These games are probably going to start taking on a lot more meaning. And now you already have kind of some pre-existing history between these two clubs. If Larusa sticks around and manages the White Sox, like I think him and AJ are just naturally different personalities, different generations. You, you know, you have the personalities you have on the White Sox, uh, the Tigers. Yeah, the Tigers do have guys like Alex Lang and, and they'll probably have some more strong personalities or, or personalities that kind of emerge as they begin to get better. So, yeah, I think it's awesome. I think this week is kind of it's a lot of talk. It's a lot of steam. It's interesting, but ultimately meaningless. But I think this thing will have legs into next year and, and the couple of years beyond that. I think we're going to be in for some fun Tigers-White Sox games. And I'm not going to be shocked if the bench is clear another time or two here in the next couple of years between these two teams. I mean, okay, so a couple things like, and again, obviously I'm a Tigers fan, but like I, I always try to be fair and, and, and well-rounded in my reasoning. So I don't want this to come across as just like a FU LaRusa thing. But it's really hard for me to get my to wrap my arms around Tony LaRusa, who this year, not in the past, not ten years ago, not during the Bash Brother era, like this physical season, he was criticizing his own players for for lack of a better term, pimping home runs. And, and, like, blowout games when they have a position player on the mound and all that stuff. Criticizing them. Saying, like, this will be corrected. <laughs> this is not playing the game, quote-unquote, the right way. And then to have a comment that's, like, if you don't have elite command or whatever and you're throwing a fastball inside, that's the same as throwing at somebody. Like, I just... That doesn't... Make that make sense, Tony. Make that make sense because that that does not seem to be like he comes from an era like he's been managing a long time. He managed against Nolan Ryan and a bunch of guys who would throw inside at the drop of a hat and not think twice about it. So now 
we now we're supposed to think like because of your words, Tony, we're supposed to think, oh, well, you know, I guess it's always risky to throw inside. And it's not like Obreu crowds the plate. The pitch missed. Pitches miss. Like, that's why they have this thing called balls and strikes. Like, it, it like it, it uh, to, to say that comment and based on recent behavior, it just, it, it's hard for me. Like, if he came out with a well-reasoned argument, I'd be like, hey, man, I get that. I get it. I might disagree with it, but I get it. But he didn't provide that this time. And... You know, like, I, I do agree with you that this is probably not the last time we get sort of instances like this. You, you see this all the time in sports where there's a perennial power. And the White Sox, as great as they are, they're not perennial in the division yet just because, you know, the years haven't done it. But we all sort of anticipate, we think of them that way, so I'll, I'll use the analogy. Whenever there's like a perennial power and then you have this like pesky team or program or whatever that's kind of fighting their way through that glass ceiling, like the power very much feels threatened and their fans, probably more specifically their fans, but the fans feel threatened where it's like, no, 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 you're still squat. We're the top dog. And we see that in college football while you and I were in college. I feel like that was kind of like an Oklahoma State Baylor thing Mm -hmm. where like Baylor started to emerge and Oklahoma State fans really wanted to squash Baylor hard, probably more so than Texas and OU because Baylor threatened Oklahoma State standing in football. And I think in Chicago, you saw this with like tweets from the – the NBC Sports Network Chicago or whatever their local affiliate is, uh, tweeting out like, Abreu's just tired of being hit by the Tigers. And it's like, well, factually speaking, that's not a reason. Exactly. That's not a reasonable fear. Now, just generally speaking, okay, we can we can all understand that. But like if, if you're going to put that out there, and obviously it was you know promotional for White Sox stuff and all that stuff. I get it. But the White Sox are the dogs right now of of the uh, of the NL or excuse me AL Central, and the Tigers are trying to get there. You know they're trying to get there, and every step of the way, anytime they play the White Sox, it's gonna be like the White Sox are gonna view themselves as big brother, and the and they're gonna look at the Tigers as little brother until the Tigers prove otherwise. So I, I do firmly believe that this is something that will play out if, uh, like, next season. Like, th- this is this is very much going to be a thing. This this would not have diffused tensions at all, but what I think Tony La Russa or Jose Abreu, someone should have said, is we're about to be in the playoffs. They stay at home, like, pipe down. Like, tell the Tigers to pipe down. Tell Alex Lang to just chill. Uh, to not take offense, to embrace that big brother role and that black hat role, which, I mean, the White Sox do. But I think that would have been a more reasonable comment than than what LaRusa said about pitching inside. Um, also, I think I've referenced this on the pod before, but this summer I reread LaRusa's Three Nights in August book with Buzz Bissinger that I think is one of the best things ever done on what it's like to be a major league manager. Um 
And obviously La Russa is who he is, but in the book he goes at length, there's a whole chapter about like when it's okay to retaliate and when it's not. And back when Dave Duncan was, was La Russa's longtime pitching coach, he basically would have to get like console from Dave because La Russa would get so wrapped up that someone hit his guy. He thought it was intentional. If his guy hit someone, he didn't think it was intentional because he's a competitor. He's a manager. He's got his teams back. And so when he was weighing whether to, yeah, La Russa has absolutely ordered his team to plunk opposing batters uh, with a rule that it needs to be like in the, the middle of the body. You don't go for guys' heads. Uh, but he would ask Dave Duncan, like, was that intentional? What do we do? And um, Dave Duncan's no longer his pitching coach. So maybe maybe that's the real problem. Maybe he just needs <laughs> Dave Duncan to come back and, and, and uh, <laughs> you know, diffuse the whole and situation. Give him, yeah. Give, yeah. Well, uh, I was going to say, generally speaking, Cody, as a – a guy, you know, follows the game of baseball, has followed the game of baseball your entire life. What is your general stance on unwritten rules? Stupid. You, so you stupid. think they're I mean, stupid? Most of them are very stupid. Even, like, in the clubhouse, there are unwritten rules. Like, don't talk to players while they're sitting on the couch. And it's like, what? Like, I feel like when a guy's sitting on a couch, that would be an ideal time for him to do an interview because he's not doing anything. Uh, there are a lot of weird, antiquated things like that on and off the field in the game. I think most of them are very stupid. Yeah, and and I get all that. I, I will say my little piece uh, on that kind of thing. Maybe I just think differently than most, but like I don't have any problem with pimping a home run. I have no problem with a pitcher you know, exuberantly celebrating after a key strikeout or whatever. But at the same time, those are both like showing up the opponent opponent acts. Like, we can just be honest mm. about that. They are. So I don't have a problem with uh, like the, the reasoned, not reasoned, but like the safe, I guess, retaliation. Like if you pimp a home run and then the pitcher plunks you on the butt, and again, same thing about, you know, anything anything high or whatever applies. But if you get plunked on the butt for it, I don't have a problem with that either. Just like, you know, if if you strike out and a pitcher does whatever and then you and I know it's a little bit different, but if you get a really key base hit and you kind of throw it in their face back, like I, I just don't have a problem with anything, I guess, is sort of like I, my spiel on that. There is just not the most mature method of conflict resolution. I think if a guy hits a homer and pimps it off you, what you should do is try to strike him out and then yell after you strike him out. You know, I think, I think the whole, like I get it, I guess from the competitive aspect, but the idea of hitting someone, you literally do it because it hurts, but you don't actually want to do it to where it injures the guy because that's messed up. Um, you're giving you're all, you're giving the opposing team a free base, which is why I don't think batters should be upset. They get plunked in the butt either. Yeah, it's like no, your on base just went take up, bro. First base, like I think, I kind of think maybe we should move on from hitting people as a means of retaliation. Like, let's have fun, let's be competitive, but it's, I think it's just actually kind of silly. Yeah, and again, I won't disagree w with that notion. This is one of the elements where baseball not being a contact sport, like there are only yeah. so many avenues for that kind of thing to go on, but. We we can move on from that. That was that that was a fun little discussion. There's more to come. That that's that's really the the well. Let me rephrase. If the Tigers improve, 
like their trajectory suggests, there's definitely more to come. So this won't be the last time we talk about it. And you know what? That's great for the sport. That's great for the division. That's great for, you know, you, you want to see the Tigers on Sunday Night Baseball playing, a, you know, concluding a, a series against the White Sox. These are the kind of things that happen that make, like, league and TV executives be like, I want, I want Detroit and Chicago on Sunday night baseball because that's mm-hmm. going to get ratings. So th- it's all good for the sport. Um, moving on to uh, something else you wrote this week. You, you kind of did a uh, season in review with Miguel Cabrera uh, this week on The Athletic. And one of the things that, that, that I talked about last week was, you know, when you're, when you're in a day-to-day like you are, like I am, like most Tigers fans are, you kind of lose sight of things that we were feeling like months ago because it, you know, it's a long season. And obviously I could remember Cabrera struggling. I didn't remember him struggling that bad when you laid out those numbers. And... I loved this this stat from uh, June 14 on. So we're not talking about a small sample size here, hitting, among other things, 301 with a 800-plus OPS. Um, if you told me for two-thirds of the season Miguel Cabrera is going to bat 300 and have an 800-plus OPS, <laughs> I would say, hope. Oh, God, we got a really good Miguel Cabrera this year, especially if you go from, you know, a sample size that's, you know, from start to the finish of the season. I mean, we lament a lot of the extracurriculars with Cabrera now at this point, uh, and it's all warranted, as you put in your story, the contract, the age, you know, the, the, the war. Okay, cool, whatever. It's there. Uh, can't really do much about those figures in general but we got to give credit where credit is due that's a pretty nice stretch for a guy 38 years old cody it's kind of a weird thing to think about it's one of those where look the fact of the matter is miguel cabrera is not a valuable player i think he's worth negative 0.4 uh war it's like the worst of his career and yet like you said well he's been really productive for two-thirds of the season he was so bad in April and May that it's really like he was very, very bad. He was hitting below 100 for, for uh, a good chunk there. And we were like, what do they do? Like, can they actually keep this guy on the roster? Do you like let him get his milestones and then cut ties? And that's, I think we kind of have lost sight of how much that conversation has changed because now Miguel's been pretty valuable. He's, or at least he's been good. And his offense since June 14th has been 20% above league average based on the the weighted runs created plus stat. Um, Look, he's first base DH. The power just isn't quite there. Uh, But he's had a nice stretch. He's been among the more productive hitters in this order. And that's actually kind of remarkable given how bad he was at one point this year, given kind of the narrative about his decline. And yeah, look, he's, he's never going to be MVP, triple crown Mickey. Unfortunately, he has to kind of try to live up to that standard. And that's just like, not the reality at this point in his career. 
I, but I also think it's it's got to be kind of hard for him. Like, imagine being Miguel and you know, I mean, he said it. I asked, like, what was it like starting so slow? And he's like, well, I've had slumps before, but I knew this one could be a little different because of my age. Like, he had that thought. And then he said, I knew I was going to start hitting at some point. Uh, probably the mindset you got to have to be a Hall of Fame hitter. And he was right. And then he did start hitting. Um, but I think he's kind of had to accept, like, who he is now, too. He's not going to hit 40 home runs. The, the guy at age 38 has actually done that, I think, better than a lot of players in his shoes might. You know, I, you know me, I love to come up with analogies, and a lot of times they go across sports. And I don't want to spend too long on this. Oh, here yeah, we go. I don't want to spend too long on this because we'll probably have the same conversation when, uh, when he hits number 3,000. But actually, you know what? I'll 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 save this one and I'll and I'll make it a baseball analogy. How, is that better for you? You like that better? Okay, so kind of quarterback analogy to be done. I'm trying to think of one, but no, let's go baseball analogy, please. Okay, so I watched the Ken Griffey documentary earlier this year, and if you watch the documentary, they talk about like his style of play and all of his injuries. And you think, man, what could have been? And then you look at his final numbers, <laughs> and it's like 600 home runs, and yeah, you know, all this stuff. Like, shirt fire, hall, like, first battle hall of famer. No, like, anyone who voted against him was just basically being like, DiMaggio wasn't a first ballot hall of famer, so therefore no one can be a first ballot hall of famer. That's literally the only reason why. Ken Griffey Jr., all-time great baseball player. Hot take here on Turning the Corner Podcast. Uh... There's a little bit of that with Cabrera, not because yeah, of his style of play, but because of like, like you could you could reasonably say, and you would be correct to say like, you know, maybe if he took care of his body a little bit better, maybe if he did this a little bit more, maybe if he did this a little less, you know, what could have been? And then he's going to retire, and he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, and you're going to look at the stats and be like, oh, wow. He he batted this. He had 500 home runs and 3,000 hits. He's in this company of. And he had a triple crown. He's in this company of like four, four guys, and it's gonna be names like Hank Aaron and Ted Williams and like all this stuff. And it's like maybe the whole like what could have been thing is a little bit of a in the moment spur of the moment like notion. So, uh, so I kept a baseball there. There's a basketball analogy there that I'm going to save for another time. But the 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 baseball element where it's like, oh man, what could have been? Uh, what could have been? This guy was an all time great. What could have been? And so like, if you're just an, a Cabrera apologist, or if you're Miguel Cabrera, like if someone were to like lay this criticism on him, he could reasonably be like, uh, I grew up on dirt fields in Venezuela. And I made this much money, and I accomplished this many things in Major League Baseball. Uh, I think I did okay. And there'd be no rebuttal to that because the fact would remain. And for this season specifically, there was a, there was a word in your story that just, like, popped out to me. And it's a word that can be used in different ways. But when you said he had a development this year i was like man like you don't think about established hall of famers on their last leg 
putting it kindly, not optically known to be taking care of his body. Um, having like an in-season development. It's just not really something you associate. Uh, l- let me ask you this. Did we ever hear about a in-season development with Albert Pujols? No. Now, I, I, I never followed the Angels all that closely and, and you know, whatever he's done with the Dodgers or whatever, but, like, I never I never read that. Molly Knight never wrote that, you know? So there's some credit there that has to be put at Miguel Cabrera's feet for – like you said, acknowledging the slump, knowing that it's different, and being able to write the ship. Like, like that's, that, that is something. That is absolutely something, especially on a team as optimistic as everybody is about this team that was never really going to seriously compete for the playoffs. Uh, maybe he got rejuvenated because they were playing, you know, some, some big some big time baseball and, and all that stuff, but like you know, he wasn't trying to get his bat right for October. That was never really a thing. There's a lot of credit there because we've seen many instances, and some with him in the past, where that wouldn't have been the case. And and that's a testament to Miguel Cabrera, honestly, as much as anything in the later stages of his career. This is not remotely related to anything. But you said Joe DiMaggio. I just want to throw this in there because I think it's interesting. Something that even big baseball buffs of, of my generation might not realize because it's been 70 years since the guy retired. Joe DiMaggio won two MVPs, missed three years serving in the military, came back, won another MVP. His career number, he only had 361 home runs. He retired at 36. He missed three years serving in the Army. So just a really fascinating career arc. Anyway. <laughs> it is. And uh, people, I don't know how many people our generation, remem- not remember, but recognize uh, that I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe it was 1941? Was that the the 400 year for Ted Williams and the 56 uh, game hit streak for DiMaggio? Gosh, that happened in the same year? I don't know. I am, I am 99, this is real time, folks. I am 99.99% positive that happened in the same year because uh, DiMaggio won MVP that year. This is all off the top yeah, of my head. DiMaggio right. won no, MVP. You're, you're, that, you're killing it. This is actually accurate, all of it. DiMaggio won MVP that year. The last player to hit 400 didn't win MVP wow. because Joe DiMaggio one uh, or ha- had the 56 game hit streak he only hit 357 that year what a what a chump <laughs> scrub he's he failed 75 percent of the time he sucks not a hall of famer uh oh another offseason random pod topic why did miguel tejada win the 2002 mvp he shouldn't have not really that's a tease that, that's what we that's what that's what we call a tease yeah. that that's something that you and i had been texting about uh we need to dive deep into that a little bit but all right, so um, Miguel Cabrera, flowers for Miguel Cabrera there. Um, you also wrote, as you said on the pod, like you plug your work so well. You were like, you know, we got Cabrera, we got Badu coming up. You're a subscriber. You're gonna be able to read all this stuff. The season of Akil Badu 
is a very interesting one because it's heavy on hype, warranted hype, deserved hype, but it's hype that you can't let it override some of the realities. So we like we're gonna like if you just talk to like a casual Tigers fan, they would figure Akil Badu is a as you know to use the AJ term in pen. He's an in pen guy on the starting lineup opening day and you know whatever going forward. And while that very well could end up being the case, as we sit here today, it would be irresponsible to do that given the season he's had. Wow, you're criticizing Akil Badu. I'm not criticizing Akil Badu. This guy went through many ebbs and flows, highs and lows, which is to be expected for a guy who, A, made the roster perhaps against odds, and B, hadn't played above high A, and hadn't played competitive baseball in a long time because of injury and then the COVID year. So one of the things I'm trying to wrestle with in my mind is what can we put in pen for Akil Badu? I feel like we can put in pen. He's going to be in the starting outfield competition next year. Is he going to have a leg up? Is that too strong uh, of a phrase? I, I, I don't know about that. Obviously, this depends on offseason moves, as we've talked about on this pod. You know, perhaps an uh, established outfielder is, uh, free agent signing is, is a play the Tigers could have. But Akil Badu has played his way into the conversation of, as I like to say, potential franchise pillar. Uh it's a little it's too soon to say that he is one but there are some glaring holes in his game as much as we love watching him play as much of his highlights have brought great memories for this season you know there are just some things that you got to be able to uh to reckon with one is his on base percentage when batting leadoff it's not what you want as a leadoff very bad yeah and another another is he's an outfielder outfield arm is important and with the tommy john in his past i don't know it, it, it's a bad arm right now he is only what 23 years old mm-hmm. it, it, maybe this is something that can be improved on both that and the on base but i don't know when you assess Akil Badu, how much of his flaws are able to be um, either shortened or improved on? Or, you know, are these things like at what point is he like his arm what it is? His on base at leadoff is what it is. Like, where, where, where do we land on that? Well, I'll start with the arm. I think the arm is what it is. I think generally speaking, if you can't throw a baseball well at age 23, you're not going to magically figure out how to do it, you know, over an off season. 
you know, there there may be some technique things he can clean up and become a little bit better thrower from the outfield. But I think it's always going to be a weak arm. I think we've already seen him improve as an overall defensive player this year. Just the routes and the jumps he gets are better. I think George Lombard is so good at positioning. I think he has a, a chance to become a little better outfielder, but I don't think he's really what you need in center field, which we talked about uh, before in the pod. Like It would really help you out if he could play center. He's worth negative five defensive runs saved in 60 games in center field this year. I think you get Riley Green up here next year, and, and you want him in center a lot more than you do Akil Badu. So then you're pushing him to a corner. So then, okay, what's your offensive profile actually like? Well, you look at his rookie year numbers, 258 average, 327 OBP, 13 homers, 17 steals. Pretty good for, you know, especially a guy who hadn't played above a ball. Let's say Riley Green comes up next year and he hits 258, 13 homers, 327 OBP. I think given the level of hype we're at with Riley Green, we'd be like, oh, that's a little disappointing. Definitely would expect a little more power. But you'd also be like, well, you know, that's you can build on that. That's not a bad rookie year for virtually anyone. Uh, The thing with Badu is I don't think anyone quite knows what his ceiling actually is, in part because he was just thrust in the fire so much this year as a Rule 5 pick. I think the struggles against lefties are real. I think he has uh, – it's not just that he doesn't hit lefties. It's that he almost has like a different swing against lefties. He, he went through a phase where he was just trying to touch the ball and put it in play. And at some point, if you really want to be a bona fide everyday player, you got to be able to drive the ball um, against left-handed pitchers. He has a 245 slugging percentage in – 98 at-bats from the left side, zero homers, only two extra base hits. Like, that to me is the makeup of a platoon outfielder. There's, there's nothing wrong with a good platoon outfielder. I don't know that he's You can make quite, a career out of that. That's oh, cool. totally. Uh, I don't know that he's quite, you know, long-term what you want at leadoff. I think he can improve. I think he does have some good – we're talking – I don't know. We were talking so much about Akil and like plate discipline earlier in the year. And now I look at it, 121 strikeouts, 43 walks. Uh, he went through a phase this year where he was not really walking much at all. Uh, I think he has the makeup of a player who can walk a little bit more. I still think there's even probably a little more power that we could see in this bat. Like I think Akil Badu is very good. I think he will be in the in the you know, starting outfield, especially against right-handed pitching next year. What does Akil Badu's uh, career look like five years from now? I guess that's the question I'm supposed to answer, but like everyone else, my answer is, you know, I, I don't really know. I'm not sure. Got to see a little more. Well, here, here's the thing about, like, everyone wants absolutes, and – and, and, and we don't re- we we don't dive in, in, into politics on, on this podcast, but the phrase that no one will ever say in politics, no matter what side of the aisle you lie on, is "I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, in, in a way, it'd be kind of refreshing to be like, oh, "Yeah, I, I think don't know." Society would be way better off if more people would admit they don't know, because that means you're actually trying to like learn or keep an open mind. A lot of people don't do exactly. that. A lot of people don't do that. Exactly. Exactly. So a lot of people with in baseball like, don't do that. 
like rush to make yeah. these definitive judgments. That can be a, a bad thing. My my the phrase I come up with or I oh, say no 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 the phrase I come back to I didn't come up with it. This is actually a phrase from Colin Cowherd of all people. He's like Uh-oh. people are so focused on being right. The focus should be on getting it right. And yeah. I and that that to me resonates in baseball and football and basketball and life and politics or you know whatever. You want to get it right. You know who cares about being right? You want to get it right. And with Badu, we we were going to have all these like conversations, but the bottom line is got to sort of wait and say I don't know if he can do this. And whether he can improve in this area and whether he can improve in that area is going to determine what his role is. It's kind of all on him. And by the way, as a professional athlete, that's what you want. You want it to all be on you. I you know, guess, yeah. you you want to be in charge of your own uh of your own destiny if you would and he would be great for the tigers if he could continue to improve if he could become a mainstay that'd be awesome but we've also seen a million guys that have one good year two good years and and then it just kind of falls off it's a hard game it's a really hard game and so i believe he has the potential I believe that he has the work ethic. I believe he has the mindset necessary. Um, but you just you just never know. And I, you know, a guy who not to really compare, but kind of similar build, similar style of play to Akil Badu is Kirby Puckett. And Kirby Puckett's in the Hall of Fame. So I don't think Akil Badu is probably gonna be in the Hall of Fame. And I don't know what it was like to be a Minnesota Twins fan in nineteen eighty five. But I know Kirby Puckett played 161 games and hit four home runs. I probably would have been like, he hit 288. I would have been like, oh, pretty good player, you know, can do some things well, can really uh, um, be good at the top of your lineup, probably not going to hit for power. The next year he hit 31 home runs. So, like, who knows? Well, I I will say this. Now, Now, Puckett established this firmly much later in his career but you know he had a flair for the dramatics and Badu also has a sense of the moment and a flair of the dramatics we saw that barely early on this year and you know how much is that worth I don't know but it's worth something it's worth something if you can you know have a knack for making big plays and big moments like you know that 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 tells you a little bit about the person and the player there. Um, Kirby Puckett's OPS plus as a rookie was seventy nine. Akil Badu's is one hundred and twelve. It'd probably be lower if Akil played every day against lefties, though. Well, yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a million directions we go. The but like I said, the bottom line is he's gonna have the opportunity. And when we first started this podcast, it's a very young podcast. You know, we haven't been going all that long. When we first started this podcast, it's like, Akil Badu, come on, really? Like, come on. Yeah, like, this guy's not going to have gonna ha- Like, come on, get real, you know? And, and you know, credit to him. He, he changed the conversation. He's not a real five draft pick anymore, really. Like, that's, like, how we got to look at him. So, so, so Akil Badu, and, and, and to transition a little bit, Casey Mize, um, and I, I want to do a more deeper dive on Mize uh, uh, later and maybe next week or the week after that or whatever during the offseason. But just generally speaking, service level stuff here. 
two guys that ought to be in rookie of the year conversations. Just conversations. Just be like, they had nice seasons and they deserve they deserve some recognition for it. Maybe not necessarily having the hardware, but they deserve recognition for it. You have a rookie of the year vote. So number one, I'm a curious guy. I think our listeners are curious. You know, how did that come about? Uh, you know, yeah, I, I think that's kind of interesting. And number two, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to say, like, who you're going to vote for, but, like, when you look at the landscape of the rookies in the American League, who are you sort of just, like, you know, impressed by or maybe, like, man, it'd be, it's hard to overlook him, you know? Like, what what's your thought process on that? Because, you know, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a big responsibility. Any of these awards is a big responsibility. Yeah. An MVP vote one year and, and, and Cy Young the next year. Uh, I have no idea how that's determined. I, I assume it's kind of random or maybe there's like some seniority involved because last year I had manager of the year. This year I had rookie of the year. So I've, I, I haven't had the big, the real big boy awards yet. Um, so you know, some guy named Jack O'Connell, who's like a head of BBWAA in New York, sent me an email. He's like, hey, you have the rookie of the year vote. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, in this email, it also says that I cannot reveal my ballot. So I cannot tell you who I'm going to vote for, but I can walk through the discussion points. And uh, you can put three people in your ballot. You have to list the top three. I'm going to break the heart of Tiger's Twitter, but I don't see any Tigers being in the top three. Keel Badu's had a very good rookie year. Casey Mises had a very good rookie year. But by any rational measure, I don't really think he can make a case for either of those guys being in the top three. I think for most voters, what it's really coming down to is Wander Franco or Randy Rosarina, two Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Franco's numbers are ridiculous. He's hitting 284. He has this insane on-base streak. 2.4 2.4 war in only 68 games. Uh, terrific year, but he just hasn't played all year. So, you know, is he the rookie of the year? I'm not sure. On the converse, you have a Rosarina who um, hitting 271, 2.8 war. Oh, but he also played a lot last year and he played in the playoffs. And some people are like, is this guy even actually a rookie? Well, technically, he is a rookie, or he he wouldn't be on the ballot, of course. Played for the St. Louis Cardinals 24 games in 2019. Like, this guy's been around, you know. But technically, he's a rookie, so I think you got to consider him. And then you look at, you know, I think generally for award voting, and I, I vote a little on, like, AL Player of the Month and stuff. And I generally, maybe because I'm a, uh, a millennial I go look at war and then WRC plus, and then that's kind of a baseline. And sometimes like the eye test or factors like, okay, did this guy's team win or did he do something exceptional um, factor in? Well, the, the war leader among AL rookies is Adolis Garcia from the Texas Rangers. So based on how I normally do this, I'd be like, oh, I guess, I guess Adolis Garcia is my rookie of the year. But then it's like, okay, his WRC plus is actually only 101. So basically, he's a league average hitter. 
31 home runs as a rookie. That's awesome. But his OVP is 287. Like, this is just a uh, not only a power or strikeout type of guy, but a, like a guy who doesn't really get on base. So when I look at that, I think Rose Arena is just overall a better player. And Franco's a better player. And then you look at the pitching side of things. It's so hard having to, like, compare pitchers to hitters. But Luis Garcia, the Houston Astros, actually, now that I look at it, 3.1 wins above replacement on fan graphs. Uh, he's gone 155 innings, 3.30 ERA. He's basically been, uh, you know, he's got a lower ERA than Casey Mize. He's got a much higher strikeout rate than Casey Mize. Shane McClanahan for the Rays has been very good. Emmanuel Classe is a relief pitcher, but man, that guy's dominant. Like, there are a lot of really good rookies in the AL this year. And unfortunately, I think that means Mize and Badu just, there's really no rational way you can put either of those guys in the top three. I think the most interesting discussion, I think, comes down to what do you do about Wander Franco? Is he the rookie of the year? Because I think he is the best rookie. But did he have the best rookie year? And there's really no definition on like how you're supposed to vote that. Um, and to be honest, I, I haven't decided what I'm going to do. But I think Franco is, is really what makes this interesting. And then Garcia, too. Like, do you put Adolis Garcia in the top three? Um, I, I think Luis Garcia has probably got to be in your top three. And then you got a Rosarena. And then you got, I think... Yeah, Adolis Garcia and Wander Franco like make it a very kind of tricky award to vote for. Baseball's in good hands. American League's in good hands. Uh, there's a lot of good young players, and uh, if Tigers fans can dream for a second, uh, there will be some more serious contenders over next year, maybe the year after that or whatever, for uh, rookie of Here's the a year. Why don't we have... We've got MVP and Cy Young. Why don't we have like rookie hitter of the year and rookie pitcher of the year? I think that just made things Ooh, easier. That's a good. That's a good suggestion. Good suggestion. Uh, real quick, we can wrap up here. Uh, and and just a, a PSA for everybody: we're not being too reflective on uh, the team overall. We wanted to kind of give a week to sort of digest everything, and then we'll kind of dive into that in the coming weeks. Uh, not anticipating any time off as of now with the podcast. So. Uh, with Jake Rogers having Tommy John and Matthew Boyd having his uh flexor having surgery or whatever. Flexor tendon. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we didn't really get like a definitive update. I was sort of waiting for like some team statement. Where it's like Matthew Boyd had a successful surgery, and you know Jake Rogers had a successful surgery, and you know you never hear like unsuccessful surgeries, but it's one of those things that you know some organizations do across sports where you know you just kind of give a little bit of an update and say like you know things went according to plan, and you know person is recovering well, and you know you know whatever. Uh, did we get anything about Boyd this week, or have you heard anything about Rogers as well from a while back? Uh, we we did get that with Jake Rogers. You know, AJ was talking about Jake's situation, and you know, kind of at the end, it it was kind of a a bummer conversation. It's like, well, Jake had a good year, now he's out for all next year. Now you really have no catcher. Like it was, 
It wasn't very positive. And then at the end, AJ's like, but there is some good news. The surgery was successful. Like, he's going to be back. He was like, <laughs> that's really spinning. I'm glad the surgery went as, as it should have. Uh, <laughs> and he will be back. It's just not for a very long time. Uh, Matt Boyd posted a picture on Instagram post-surgery. All it said was intermission act two coming up soon, which he also told the media. I think that's pretty corny. I can see why Matthew Boyd likes it and continues to repeat it. And we'll probably <laughs> keep hearing it from Maddie. Uh, also hashtag day at a time, hashtag better than before, not than before hashtag trust. So, <laughs> so that's Matt. I guess that's Matt Boyd's way of saying this, uh, this procedure was successful and he will be back better than before. Um, AJ Hinge was asked about it and, you know, the question included like, oh, Matt, he posted on Instagram. And then AJ Hinch was like, well, you know, you should take it from Matt. He knows better how things went than I do. So I guess all we have to go on from Matt Boyd is this Instagram post. Uh, I think it's still, I don't know if we have much of a timeline. The question on Boyd is still, how long is it going to take to recover? Because it's not Tommy John. Like, it seems like the flexor tendon can vary. It's like nine months is like average, but it could be shorter it could be longer and uh we we have not gotten any word on that yeah and we won't know for a very long time even if he does come back it won't be like you yeah, know, that, yeah it's not a video game people you know there are certain elements here that yeah. uh that are at play so all right well you know the season may be over uh but we're not over cody we're we're gonna we're gonna keep on grinding along um so i'll, I'll save some reflectives but i i, I do want to say Thank you to everybody who has uh, stuck with us from the beginning or caught on to us at whatever time and and listened and and uh, download the podcast and subscribed on Apple and Spotify. Uh, it's all passion from us. It, it, there's not any other reason for us to do this. We enjoy doing it, and uh, and so we're appreciative. So, but you know, I don't want to sound like a goodbye or anything like that because we're gonna keep going. But I, I do want people to know that listen that like you know it's not lost on us that you know you you guys make us part of your your mondays your tuesdays or whatever to to listen to just us kind of just like chop it up or whatever like it's 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 fun that people find it interesting so well like i said we'll continue going on we'll keep on keeping on and we just want to say again thank you everybody for listening so for cody stavenhagen in chicago I am Kieran Steckley. Thank you for listening.